Please look with me at uh, Isaiah chapter 52, last couple of verses, and then reading through chapter 53. And as you're turning there, let me let me just uh, let me just say this: um, worship is a drama, and it is not a spectator sport. It is highly participative, and you are the participants, and God is a participant as well. God comes here to participate in worship. And I mention this to you because you can actually rehearse for this drama week by week. You can go to the website in the middle of the week, and you can find the bulletin, and you can familiarize yourself with what is going to happen on the following Lord's Day, so that you are rehearsed for this incredible drama that unfolds week by week. Just an encouragement to you before we read. All right, Isaiah 52, beginning at verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up, and he shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what they heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken, For the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. And by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. 
Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Let's pray together. Thank you, Jesus, for this incredible picture, this incredible portrait of your passion and also of your glory and of your humiliation, of your weakness. Oh, Lord Jesus, bless us as we consider your word and take from it what is needed for the heart of each person who is here this morning. Do this by your spirit, we pray in your name. Amen. You may be seated. We are looking at Isaiah 52, 13 through 53, 12, as we move in the direction uh, of Holy Week, beginning with Palm Sunday next Lord's Day, and then Monday, Thursday, Good Friday, and then Resurrection Day. We're, we're looking at this passage to sort of set ourselves up for uh, walking through those services There's a story that is told of a young boy, seven or eight years old, who lived with a very angry and tyrannical father. As with most stories, this story describes and captures the real experience of way too many people. That's why the story tells well, because we can connect with it and relate to it. Dinner time for this eight-year-old boy was, was hell. If there was any conversation at all, it was tense. And when it wasn't tense, it was anger filled, usually, usually accompanied with tears. And it was not uncommon for the father at some point during the dinner to throw his napkin on the table and and get up from the table in a rage and head for the kitchen to find his bottle. The little boy would finish his dinner in tears and then he would leave the table and he would run outside and he'd run down the street, three or four houses, and he'd sneak up onto the porch of the home of a friend and he'd sit under the window the window just, just right next to outside of the dining room. And he would listen to his friend and his friend's family and the laughter and the conversation and the father laughing with his children, talking with and delighting in his children and his family And the little boy wondered, what would it be like to live in a family like that? What would it be like? I recently heard the testimony of a man whose story was very much this story. And in God's mercy and kindness, there was a family in his neighborhood with two boys, and these two boys became his best friends in the neighborhood, and the father adopted 
the neighbor boy and brought him into his home and brought him to mealtimes so that the boy could taste and could share in and experience the realities of the gospel. He showed him the gospel at his dining room table before he spoke the gospel to him with his words. What the story of the little boy points to and what the experience of this man points to is the larger reality of the gospel. The larger, all-encompassing, all-embracing, big, 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 gospel of Jesus Christ that touches every aspect of human existence and that reaches deep down into the deepest places of our souls and speaks to the deepest longings of our hearts. The gospel is big. The analogy that I've used, that I've suggested that you use, which really, in a sense, only gets at a part of the bigness and the greatness of the gospel The metaphor I'm encouraging you to use is the metaphor of a house. And not some small house, but a big house. An estate home. Think Biltmore. Think Downton. Think a French chalet on a mountainside that just rambles, that's filled with hallways and passages and cellars and libraries and dining rooms. And the rooms all have names. They have names like acceptance and cleansing and hope and reconciliation and beauty, and harmony, and love, deeply, deeply existential kinds of notions. And then there are these other rooms with, with profoundly theological names like justification, and regeneration, and sanctification, and imputation. You pass by those rooms because those words aren't in your vocabulary, but they need to be. But it's okay because they're not going anywhere. And you can explore the rooms that your hearts are drawn to. And then when your hearts begin to be filled with the realities of these other existential things, then then go back to those other rooms. There are all kinds of rooms in Isaiah 52 and 53, so many rooms that we, don't, we can't even begin to go into all of them. I just want to go into one of them this morning. In fact, you could sort of think of it as a kind of a suite of rooms. This is kind of like going to the Biltmore, you know. You only get to see a few rooms in the Biltmore. But there are these suites of rooms in this vast mansion. Here's the the suite of rooms I'd like to wander around in this morning. It's the suite called Consolation. The suite of rooms called 
consolation. Look at verse 4. Verse 4 is the doorway into this suite of rooms called consolation. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Who? Who's the he? Well, you know who the he is. The he is the suffering servant. He is the one who has borne these griefs and carried these sorrows. He's the one who's referred to at the end of chapter 2, verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up. He shall be exalted. And the verse 11, he shall, or 15, he shall sprinkle many nations and kings will shut their mouths because of him. The servant shall act wisely. The servant shall be high and lifted up and exalted. This is another one of the rooms that you find in this vast, expansive mansion. It's the room of conquest. It's the room of victory. It's the room of consummation. Where Jesus, the servant, having finished his work, brings the fullness of that work to its absolute perfection when he is high and exalted and lifted up. And it isn't just his people who see it with the eyes of faith, but every king on the earth will see it and their mouths will be shut when they do. He is the king of glory. And he will be high and lifted up. And he will sprinkle and is sprinkling nations with his cleansing blood. And those nations will only be too happy as he gathers them into his glorious presence. They will only be too happy to sing his praises forever and ever. He is the servant. He is the king. And that day is coming, but this passage focuses on something else, doesn't it? The promise of his exaltation is there. But there is a work that has to be done. And this one who is the servant becomes the suffering servant. And this suffering servant who will be high and lifted up is the one who will be crushed by the Lord. As we saw last week. This is the Messiah. This is Jesus of Nazareth. This is Jesus who comes not to do his own will, but who comes to do the will of the one who sent him. The one who before he is exalted, before he is high and lifted up, will be a man of sorrows and will be acquainted with griefs. He will know sadness. I have this great Bob Dylan song on my iPod. It's called Everything is Broken. Broken lines, broken strings, broken threads, broken springs, broken idols, broken heads, broken people sleeping in broken beds, broken dishes, broken pasts, streets filled with broken hearts, broken words, never meant to be spoken. Everything is broken. 
And he, the servant, comes into this world to taste it, to know it, the deep and unrelenting sadness that is life in this world. Go read Dale Carnegie if you want to and all of his spiritual descendants. Go read How to Win Friends and Influence People. Go read books like that, The Power of Positive Thinking by other kinds of authors. Go read those things. Folks, it's not the truth. The truth is, this is a profoundly sad grief-laden, sorrow-permeated world, and Jesus comes into the world to taste that sadness. These words in the text, verse 4, that are translated, griefs and sorrows, very interesting words. The word sorrow actually means sickness. Sickness. It's typically used to refer to literal, physical sickness. Deuteronomy 7.17, the Lord will take away all sickness. It's this word. 2 Kings 13.14, a verse that Glenn shared this last week. Elisha fell sick with his sickness from which he died. It's this word. The root simply means to be ill, to be sick. The other word is used to describe Job's physical condition, and it means pain. It literally means pain. Job 33, 19, man is chastened on his bed with pain. Pain. These words obviously have significant spiritual connotations. But let's not miss the real physicality of them, the bodily dimension of them. Right? What's the point here, folks? The point is that this tragic thing, sin, this thing that has become a, if you will, four-letter word, even though it only has three letters, it's a word we don't like to use. It's offensive. This word, sin, has these far-reaching touching the totality of our human existence kinds of consequences. Physically, spiritually, bodily, soulish. Isaiah 53 is telling us that the servant has come in order that he might be acquainted with suffering, that he might be acquainted with pain, with grief, with sorrow, with sickness. This is what Paul must have had in mind in Romans 8 when he refers to Jesus coming in the likeness of sinful flesh. Coming in the likeness of sinful flesh. Sin plagued. Sin ravaged flesh. Jesus didn't come in order to be immune to or exempt from the brokenness of our existence. And look at what he does. 
Folks, this is, this is big. I mean, this is just plain big. Look at what he does. He bears our griefs and our sorrows. He bears our pains. He bears our sicknesses. The word born in the text, such a profoundly significant word. The word born in the text is the word used in connection with sacrifice for sin. Leviticus 16.22, on the Day of Atonement, you know there were two goats. There was the goat whose blood was shed and whose blood was taken into the very holy place. That blood was sprinkled on the mercy seat. The blood of that sacrificed life coming between a holy God and an unholy people making an atonement for the sins of that people. But then there was the other goat, the scapegoat. And it is that scapegoat upon whose head the priest lays his hands and confesses the sins of the people. And Leviticus 16.22 says, And the goat shall bear upon him all the iniquities of the people. Same word as in Isaiah 53. You see, Jesus bears not only our sins and our iniquities. It is clear that he does that. It is clear that he does that. Look at verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You want the biblical word for that? It's imputation. He has laid upon him. He's taken it away from you. He has laid it upon him. There there are people out there, N.T. Wright is one of them, if you're familiar with that name, people who take exception to the idea that Paul is talking about imputation in Romans chapter 3 as he lays a foundation, a foundation upon which this glorious doctrine of justification rests. You cannot read Isaiah 53 without coming to the conclusion that though the word is not there in the text, the idea is there, arose by any other name, is still as sweet. He has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And then verse 12, I'm sorry, verse 11 Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. He shall bear them. Same word as you find up in in verse 4. But you see in verse 4, he is bearing something else. He bears not only our sin, not only the guilt of our sin, but he bears as well all of the grief, all of the pain, all of the sadness, all of the ravaging effects of sin and disobedience and guilt. He bears all of it. As a friend of mine put it to me several years ago, 
Mike, when Jesus died for you, he died not only for your sins, he died for your sadness. He died for your sadness, your griefs, your sorrows. Now, where do you see this? This is Isaiah. But where do you see this? Where do you see this idea worked out? And, and this is where, again, I want to suggest to you that we're in a, we're in a suite of rooms. We're in, we're in a suite, and maybe, maybe the doorway into this suite of rooms has the word imputation over it. And, and maybe there is this sort of leading notion that it is Jesus who has taken my sins and, and my sins have been imputed to him, credited to him, given to him, my sorrows. But what comes with that? What comes with the idea that Jesus takes all of this upon himself? Let me give you some passages where you can see this played out. In the ministry of Jesus, Mark chapter 1. Maybe some of you have heard us talk about this passage. Mark chapter 1, verse 40. A leper came to him, imploring him and kneeling, said to him, If you, if you can make me clean. And moved with pity, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will, I am willing be clean, and immediately the leprosy left him. What is this, folks? Well, it's a miracle, to be sure. It's a demonstration of Jesus' power with respect to sickness. But it's more than a miracle, folks. Jesus is teaching us something here. Jesus is showing us the fulfillment of Isaiah 53. And Jesus is showing us, as he shows us the fulfillment of Isaiah 53, he's showing us something else about him in this suite of rooms. He's showing us a picture of what it is, the leper being representative of you and me, the leper being representative of one who is diseased, who is sick, who who carries all of the evidences of his sickness in his physical appearance. Eyelids that are deteriorating, earlobes that are lost, a nose that is disfigured, fingers that are ravaged by the disease. So there's the physical problem, but it's a picture of a spiritual problem. And with it comes all of this other stuff, all of this other th- these other things like being ostracized and being without a place and having to live away from healthy and normal people. Not having a home, not having acceptance, having to cry out when you come into a public place, unclean, unclean, unclean. What would you do this morning? We don't, we don't hear so much about AIDS anymore, right? Probably because the cocktails are working. But what would you do this morning if you learned that somebody in this congregation had AIDS? When I go to Tanzania, I see it. If I pointed them out, what would you do? Would you be like, would you be like Arlo Guthrie in, in the song Alice's Restaurant? You'd, you'd all move away from him there on the bench. 
Why? Because a person with AIDS, a person with AIDS, not only has a physical ailment, not only some spiritual stuff, but there's all sorts of of social stuff associated, right? Outcast, no place, no acceptance. That's a leper. And you see what Jesus does. Jesus, Jesus can heal with a word, can't he? Mark chapter 5, Jairus' daughter and the woman with the issue of blood. Jesus simply said to Jairus, go, your daughter's well. He doesn't have to be there. He doesn't have to touch. But you see what he does? He touches. He embraces. He receives. Folks, there's the physical healing part of this thing for the leper. But let me tell you something. The first suite of rooms in the vast expanse of the mansion of the gospel that he will visit is the suite called imputation and consolation. Because in that suite of rooms for the leper is cleansing. Cleansing. To be clean. No longer be a pariah. No longer a misfit. No longer an outcast. But to have the deep soulish consolation that comes from cleansing and from acceptance and from having a place. Jesus gives that place, makes that place. It's interesting, isn't it? Read through the Gospels and notice how many times Jesus touches or is touched, and by whom, and by whom. I mentioned Mark chapter 5, Jairus' daughter. You know that that story unfolds in this way. Jesus gets out of a boat. People approach Jesus and say, this man's daughter is sick. Would you please come? And so he starts to go in the direction of the home of Jairus. But as he's making his way, he's interrupted. And who, who interrupts him? The woman with the hemorrhage. The woman with the flow of blood. Do you know what the implications of that are for her? They, they say she suffered, the text says she suffered at the hands of many physicians for a long time. I can get an amen to that. A long, long time this woman was considered ritually unclean. She could not go to church. She couldn't be here. Ritually unclean, impure, because of this sickness that she had. And you know, there's, there's law and, and kind of the outworkings of the law in situations like this 
where not only do you become unclean if you touch someone who is unclean, but if you stand under the same shade tree with the person who is unclean, you contract that uncleanness. What kind of Savior do you have, my friends? Jesus allows himself to be touched by this woman. He does not rebuke her. He seeks to identify her. Who is it who touched my robes? I want to know who this is. Not offended. Doesn't send her away. Engages her and tells her, affirms her, confirms for her that her faith in him, looking to him, reaching out for him, has made her whole and clean. I have a friend who planted a church in Seattle. He tells the story of serving communion at the end of a worship service. Maybe I've shared this. At the end of a worship service in which as he sets the table for the congregation, he talks about these things. He, he talks about the far-reaching, the sort of wide-angle implications of the death of Christ for those who are outcasts, for those who are unclean, for those who need cleansing and need forgiveness and need a place and need a home. And after he has set the table with these words and, and after he has consecrated the elements as he begins to invite people to come row by row, beginning with the front rows, a guy gets up from the back of the room, the very last row, and he runs down to the front and he grabs the bread from the pastor. That's a picture of this woman rushing to Jesus to find in him the one who identifies with who associates with, who is not afraid to touch, and who in fact bears the griefs, the sorrows, the sadnesses that are part and parcel of this life. Luke chapter 7 is another one. Two, two beautiful, beautiful passages. The widow at Nain, who has lost her son, Understand, folks, she's a widow, she has no husband, she's lost her son, she has no safety net. A crowd from the village is walking with this woman and the bier upon which her son is being born out to the place where he will be buried. And another crowd, an even larger crowd, is moving in their direction. And in that crowd is Jesus. And Jesus, again, does the unthinkable thing because of the compassion that he feels for this woman. He does the unthinkable thing. He touches the dead man's beer. He makes himself unclean, just as he had with the woman, just as he had with the leper. He makes himself unclean and raises this boy back to life and speaks some of the most precious words to be found anywhere in Scripture. She restore, he restores the son to his mother. Reconciliation. Restoration. 
And then, of course, there's the dinner party at the home of Simon the Pharisee. And the notorious woman somehow finds out that the party's going on and she makes her way into the dinner party. Right? A prostitute, folks. And your Jesus allows her to wash his feet with her tears. Your Jesus did that. Always, it seems, Jesus is allowing himself to be touched, touches those who are unclean. And what is he doing? He's taking all of that uncleanness upon himself. See, it's a picture of this idea of imputation, but bearing not only our guilt and our sin, but bearing our sorrow and our shame, taking all of it upon himself so that we, as we sang in the hymn earlier, might be free of it all. Surely, He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. What's this little suite of rooms? Maybe it's consolation. Maybe it's imputation. But once you get inside the door, there are these little rooms in this suite of rooms, rooms entitled cleansing and forgiveness and restoration and wholeness and newness and freshness. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Now here's the hard thing, folks. And this is what I find just as an example. This is what I find Ed Welch doing repeatedly in the books that he writes. Books that seek to bring the incredible and diverse blessings of this gospel to bear on the individual problems, difficulties, heartaches of our life. This is what he says, asks again and again and again. Are you applying this to yourself? Are you taking this and applying this to yourself and doing that hardest of all things to do in the Christian life? Believe that it's true. Believe that both your sins and your sorrows in their entirety, your griefs, your heartaches, your disappointments, everything that flows out of that original act of rebellion against God. Are you taking these things that are being said about Jesus and are you applying them to yourself? Maybe you're on the outside looking in. There are faces here I've not seen before. I don't know you. So I'm compelled to ask, as Paul was compelled and constrained to ask, I have to ask, are you on the outside looking in? Are you you like the little boy who's living in this house over here and it just... It just isn't a pleasant place. And maybe it's a house of your own making. Or maybe, maybe it's a house that you've helped to make. 
You're complicit, but there's somebody else who has helped to build this house. You're in this house over here, and it just is not a pleasant place. And you hear the sound of music from another house, and it's sweet to you. And you think, oh, to be in that house. Oh, to know what real cleansing would feel like. Oh, to know what real freshness would feel like. Oh, to know what the beginnings of real renovation and restoration might feel like. Are you hearing what is being said about Jesus? That Jesus is that place. It is Jesus who says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. This is a wearisome house. This is a house that sucks the life out of you. And Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Or maybe you're inside the house, but as we said last week, you've just kind of come in the front door. You've just sort of stayed in the foyer, and you haven't begun to explore and marvel at and be amazed by the beauty, the diversity, the wonder of the rooms that are in this house. The last verse in Isaiah 54 says that Jesus, Jesus will divide the spoil Divide the spoil with the strong. Divide the spoil with the many. It's a picture of conquest. It's a picture of a returning, conquering king general who remarkably does not hoard the spoils of his conquest to himself, but liberally distributes them upon the many. See all kinds of rooms in this house. Get out of the foyer. Get out of the foyer. Walk into these other rooms. And do this very, very hard thing. Apply these things to yourself. Believe that these things are true. Things that Jesus gives you freely out of the abundance and limitlessness of his own love and mercy and grace. Range to and fro in the house. It's your house. It's your home. Make it your home. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, help me in this. Help us in this. Help us to see and to know that it really is true 
that at your right hand there are joys and pleasures forevermore. Give us grace to put aside the empty hopes and pleasures of this sad world and give us grace to range widely through our new home to enjoy the pleasures that you have stashed away for us. Help us, Lord Jesus, we pray in your name. Amen. Would you stand?